Die Hard PCA. Die Hard PCA. Bah, fa, the PCA is the best PCA in the A. Now everybody say Die Hard PCA. Die Hard PCA. Bye Hard the PCA is the best PCA in the A. Welcome to IRPCA. We've got this little podcast. We're talking about our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, talking to people about what they're doing, why they're doing it, what's going good, how we can pray for it and support it. And so my name is Doug Servan. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast, but I don't do it by myself. I do it with one of my very good friends, Justin Edgar. Justin. What's up, Doug? Good to see you, man. Good to that see Oriole you. That Oriole hat, glistening, brand yeah. new, clean. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. It's I was good. talking to someone. I was talking to someone yesterday, and there's this thing in Baltimore called duck pin bowling. Okay. I never heard of it. It's little ball, little balls. Yeah, small, yeah. And you don't have you don't put your fingers in it. And so she was telling me about it, and I said, "Well, I'm not from here," and she said, "No." You live here. You are from here now. Oh, wow. How did that feel? I don't know. I got to think about that. Okay, but here's my question for the day. All right. I want to know your favorite Douglases. Mm. You know, if you meet a person named Doug, there's a good chance... He is about 50. Mm-hmm. It, it has really? dropped off very much. You're not going to meet a Doug who's 20 or, or 30. But anyway, there, you know, there were some before that. Yes. How about Douglas MacArthur? Not that that's one of my favorites, but, you yeah. know, but kind of one of the most popular Douglases, Right. Yeah, he he certainly is a cultural divider. He was yeah. a character. He was. And uh, I got one for you. Okay, so tell you me. can think about yours. So you're googling. I can tell. I can see you googling because you don't have it on your head. I don't. How about Frederick Douglass? Ah, yeah. Oh. I just read about Frederick Douglass today. That's a good one. Yeah, and he lived right down the street from where I live now. Oh, really? He's from Baltimore. How about that? He lived in Baltimore. I don't know if he was born in Baltimore, but I would say he's probably the best. I think he might be. He, I, I was reading today how he uh, you know, taught himself how to read and write and then essentially started teaching other slaves how to read and write, and that's what kind of spurred him on to becoming uh, connected to being an abs- a, a absolutionist, and it's a great story. It's great. Amazing. And you know what that... About, uh, what about Kurt and Michael Douglas? Right? Those are good Douglases. Like good movies? Yeah. Excellent movies. Yeah. yeah my we favorite last name, we might, we might increase the popularity a little bit. First name? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, like, Doug. Like, there's not a lot of, like, famous Dougs. You got any other more modern famous Dougs? Cartoon. Doug. Yeah. Dance. Dance. The Doug. Doug. Dan- the Dougie. Dougie. Yeah. Yeah. The Dougie. 
Yeah, yeah. I hear like that the all the time. Yeah, sure, I get it. I'm trying to like whenever people have babies in our church, I'm like, Douglasa, turn uh, it into a girl's name. Yeah, why not? It hasn't taken. No, I, I wouldn't think it would actually. Why don't you introduce our next guest? Well, you know, we do have uh, one of my favorite Dugs on today, and his name is Doug Swaggerty. Welcome, Doug. Thank you very much. Well, it's good to be here with you guys. Yeah, man, we're so happy to have you on uh, our little pod here with all the millions of listeners that are going to hear your story today. So, um, Doug, you guys didn't you mention you guys didn't mention Doug E. Doug though. Um, Doug E. Doug. That's true. We did. Might be one of the favorites. Yeah, do you have a favorite? Well, Frederick Douglass is one I, uh, one of the reasons I like him is because of the way he spells Douglass, which is the same way that my parents spelled it on my birth certificate with two S's at the end. So that set me off as being kind of unique from most other Douglasses, but, wow. uh, but Frederick had that same, same spelling. So. And panache. Um, so Doug, where are you calling in from today? Carlsbad, California, North San Diego County. And what do you uh, what do you do there in Carlsbad, California, North County? Well, um, I I semi retired, but I'm still doing some coaching and work for a mission in North America right now uh, from from home. So yeah, most many some of our listeners, you know, if they were involved in any kind of church planting, they might have had you as uh, one of their assessors, right, Doug? Yes, I've, I've done about 25 assessments over the last 12, 13 years, something like that. That's one of my main, uh, one of my main roles that I've performed in on, with M&A over the years here. How, how, uh, how many people would that come out to be over those many assessments? It would be over 200 couples. Wow. Uh, and, and then some singles mixed in there too, obviously. But um, yeah, around 400 400 people or so over that time. That's awesome. Um, well, one of the things we ask people who are on this uh, pod is your PCA origin story. So why don't you give that to us? How did you find yourself in our uh, blessed little denomination? Yeah, it was, it was a little circuitous. I grew up in the Grace Brethren Church, um, which is a Baptist-type church here and uh, headquartered in Indiana, but uh, big in Southern California. Uh, I grew up in Long Beach, and uh, there are a lot of brethren churches there. Um, my wife and I met in high school at a high school in Paramount, California, which is right between Long Beach and, and Compton. And um, mm -hmm. we, um, her father was a minister in the OPC, and we started dating when I was uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we started dating when I was... Uh, after I graduated, I was a year ahead of my wife in school, and her father uh, was uh, one that right away tried to stick a bug in my ear about Presbyterianism, even though I hadn't started out in those circles. I went my freshman year to Grace College in Indiana, but I had a lot of friends that had attended down at Covenant, and this was, been, this was in the early 1970s, and uh, after my freshman year there, I decided to transfer down to Covenant. And uh, I hadn't fully embraced all the particulars of Presbyterianism over against the upbringing that I had, but I continued to process those things while I was at Covenant. 
And uh, when I went to Covenant, the interesting thing there in terms of the PCA was 1973, the fall of 73. And Covenant back then was not a denominational school of the PCA. It was denominational school of the RPCES um, and Francis Schaeffer's denomination, those sorts of folks. And, and But in going to Chattanooga, right away I found myself attending some churches that were talking about pulling out of the Presbyterian Church of the South. And, and so I kind of jumped right into uh, that, that debate uh, without knowing anything about it, really, at the end of 1973, when a lot of churches were making that decision to start with the PCA. Uh, after, after Covenant College, we went up to Philadelphia to do some seminary work at Westminster, I also the, the, the better the better. Let's just make sure we well, clarify that for our listeners. Like the better seminary in comparison <laughs> with Doug's school, uh, Covenant Theology. I don't know about that, but it was the original uh, the original Westminster, and we. Um, I I didn't get my full degree there. I actually uh, dropped out for a while and went over to Villanova University and got a master's degree in philosophy, and then. Uh, the, I think the biggest thing, shaping thing in those years was we attended and were members of Jack Miller's church in Jenkintown there by the seminary. And that was an Orthodox Presbyterian church in 1980. After we'd been there for about three years, uh, good, we developed a close friendship with a fellow that I ended up doing ministry with for about 25 years named Dick Kaufman. And Dick and Liz were called to come out to California because Westminster was going to start this campus in Escondido. And, and uh, they, they wanted to, the OP wanted to plant a church there and asked Dick to go out and do that. Dick knew that Lois and I were from Southern California and asked if we'd be interested in going with them to do that. And we kind of jumped at that chance to get back closer to home, but to be in, in a church planting experience that we could, uh, we could relate to. And so we moved back in 1980, uh, and we started that church, which is now the New Life Presbyterian Church of Escondido, started that around 1980, um, and operated in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for those initial years until around 1988, when there were a handful of churches in the aftermath of the joining and receiving discussion where it, it turned out finally that the invitation was there for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1986, but they declined. Uh, it, it had us. It had the support of over half of the delegates to GA, but not the two thirds that was needed. And so, in the aftermath of that, there were a handful of churches, maybe six or eight denominationally, that um, decided just to move as churches and ministers into the PCA and my church at that point was one of them. We had, I had planted a church in 1984 in Oceanside and continued to do ministry with Dick uh, during those years. But uh, we were in separate churches by that point. We both had our churches transfer into the PCA. And the interesting thing about that was that uh, the very, the OPC's General Assembly's delegated. And uh, what that means is you got to be elected by your presbytery to get there. It's, it's, it's kind of a complicated thing. I go into the PCA and right away, the first general assembly 
is at is at Biola in La Mirada, Southern California. Wow. Wow. And it's like, hey, this is great. I just pay my 400 bucks. I, I can go home at night and sleep in my own bed. And um, mm-hmm. and this will be this will be a breeze. And of course, uh, GA's never touched California since then. Right. I know we need to have that come back. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. Uh, I think Dallas or Colorado is the closest we've ever right. we've ever been since then. But that was my first uh, experience at, at a general assembly, and um, uh, we, uh, you know, my ministry in the PCA kind of took off from that late 1980s entrance into it. Doug, let's pause there. I got two questions. We'll come up to speed in the PCA. Then uh, you have two interesting things. I'm going to ask you second about Jack Miller because you're name dropping like crazy. I don't know if you ever heard of Tim Keller. You ever heard of that guy? Okay. <laughs> so you haven't mentioned him yet. So just get eventually get to that. But uh, what would it have been like if the OPC would have joined the PCA? That's an interesting question. Yeah. That, yeah. How, how would that have gone down? We're being positive, you know, like I'm not trying to disparage anything. It's just, that would have been a culture shift, it seems like. Well, I was, I was uh, personally for it. I thought that there were strengths uh, of each denomination that would have served each other well. There were also areas of uh, you know, blind spots or weaknesses that every denomination has that I felt would have, would have made a good match. Um, I think the one of the hardest things about that particular moment in time was the year that we voted on it at General Assembly was the 50th anniversary of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, where mm-hmm. they had all the different celebrations of its history and so forth. And I think for a lot of the um, people in the OPC at that point, uh, what was really important to them was having their documents, their legacy, their history kind of carried over as official um, and have some kind of official status in a merged church or, or JNR situation. And when they didn't um, feel like that was going to be uh, honored or hap- it wouldn't happen the way they wanted it to, uh, it, it uh, caused a lot of people to have doubts about that movement. Um, so I, I would have uh, I think it would have been interesting for both denominations um, to have that influence, but, um, you know, it just didn't happen. It wasn't mm-hmm. in the cards. Yeah, I do wonder what that would have been like. So we so we got Machen and we got Miller. Similar type guys. How would you compare and contrast them? I, I, I know I'm older than you guys, but I didn't know Machen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Tell us about Miller then. Well, Jack was a pretty fascinating guy, and um, I, you know, those were the years when the seminary was kind of in turmoil over uh, the issues with Norm Shepard and all the all the debates going on in the late seventies with that. And Jack was in in the thick of that as well. But um, he just had a real heart for missions. He had a real heart for evangelism. Uh, he was a mentor to a lot of a lot of different people, a lot of different pastors and, and lay people even in a lot of different ways. Um, Jack was not an easy on-ramp kind of guy, I would say. Uh, he, he didn't, uh, 
Jack's way of leadership training was to say, I'm going to be on the corner of Braun and Olney doing street evangelism on Saturday morning. Come down if you want to be, if you want to be discipled, you know. So the bar was always kind of way up there uh, for uh, the guys that wanted to get in, involved and trained by Jack. But the influence that he had over so many of us during those years was pretty profound. Mm. What was that? What was the one thing, Doug, that you kind of took away from well, what I, what I really appreciated, coming from my background in, in a more Baptistic, Grace Brethren kind of church where um, evangelism was such a high emphasis and, uh, and theology kind of played second fiddle to that, moving for my transition period into kind of a heavy, more of a heavy theological mindset, um, and then to be refreshed by by Jack's just real emphasis on the gospel and his emphasis on, on the gospel being a part of uh, not just our first steps into the Christian life, but an ongoing part of our, of our Christian life. Uh, all those things were very refreshing to me. It seemed to kind of tie a lot of loose ends together for I me and my journey. Maybe, you know, Doug, that he had a massive impact on our thinking and that's you know like lots of people and yet people don't attribute to him you know the way he talked about grace and his son the sonship stuff that's really in our waters but yes. in the in the popular culture he never became a teacher or figure or like i don't think i would guess his books didn't sell very many copies or whatever but we all know what, what he's taught i think do you agree? I would agree, and I and I think that's because of, of the types of people he um, he affected, the types of people that he influenced. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned Tim, but you know guys like Scotty Smith and and um, uh, a whole a whole bunch of guys that went through seminary during those years uh, in the mid to late seventies. Uh, they they speak of Dr. Clowney and Jack Miller and and in just very high terms for the influence that those two men in particular had on on their lives. That's awesome. So uh, before we go to the break, I thought we'd spend a, a brief moment just talking about growing up in LA and you know I know you're you're such a loyal sports fan to all things LA <clears throat> and so basically the last two years. Other, other than one, one of your teams, we'll hold that one off because there's some, some ribbing to be done between you and Doug. But your three teams, and also two of my teams, have won a championship in the last two years. How amazing! In the last 16 been? months, actually, yeah. with COVID, you know, it's kind of crazy. But the Lakers and Dodgers both won in October of, of 20, and then, then last week, you know, we had that Super Bowl victory. So, how sweet was been that? Good. Pardon. Yeah. How sweet was that? That was good. It was good. Yeah. Nice having it in Los Angeles as well. So, do you remember yeah, when, dad, when the St. Louis Rams won the Super Bowl? <laughs> Kurt Warner. What was the part? What was the first part of that question? Do, do I remember? you remember when? And it was sure. how awesome sure. it was. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Kurt Warner was one of the best. He was one of the best uh, Super Bowl quarterbacks of all time. I would agree. Did you root for the? Did you root for the St. Louis Rams, Doug? Yeah, I was um, there. Well, you're not asking, Doug, other Doug, other Doug. <laughs> California yeah, no, Doug. I was there. 
I know you did. I was there. I was happy to see them win. Um, yeah. I was going through a period where, you know, when we moved back here in 1980, we moved, we've been in citizens of San Diego County pretty much since then. And um, I was going through a transition where I was trying to own the regional teams and I kept defaulting back to Los Angeles. Yeah. So I, yeah. I had my Charger phase. Chargers yeah. were fun to watch uh, a lot of those they years. Were. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so anyway. Those Charger teams were lots of fun to watch. Yeah. So one of the favorite things that you told me about was sitting in the Coliseum for Dodger games and how when the Dodgers came from Brooklyn, that's where they first played before Dodger Stadium. And you sat, I think, in left field. at the. There was a short porch in left field. Is that right? That's right. That's right. They had a big screen. I think the... I think the um, dimension was low 200s down the line uh, but they put up a like a 40 or 60 foot screen there so that you had to you had to bloop it over so guys would hit shots you know line drive shots that would have been homers anywhere else and they would drop for singles off that screen mm-hmm. uh, and on the other hand they'd hit a little bloop fly ball that would that in a normal field the left fielder would charge it to catch it and it'd be a home run uh, wow. so it was a weird place to play baseball but they played there for um they played there for four years i think 58 through 61 and they actually won a world series there in 69 against the Mm -hmm. white Sox. but those are my first uh my first dodger games were in that uh particular configurations you know i'm pretty sure that dodger stadium is the third oldest that's correct right yeah that's amazing right yeah once yankee stadium was rebuilt uh, we're, we're third only to, uh, Wrigley and, and Fenway. So it's crazy. It's a great, it's a great park. Uh, so, uh, favorite Dodger, favorite Dodgers. I mean, I know baseball is kind of like one of like you follow baseball heavily. Um, and in comparison, maybe the other two pro sports you follow, but not as like religiously, um, do you have favorite Dodgers? Well, growing up, it was Sandy Koufax. Um, mm-hmm more recent you know the recent team uh my favorite dodger on my on the recent team was Corey seager and we just lost him but yeah I really like liked his game the way he plays yeah he's great koufax was awesome i remember reading a little sports biography about koufax in elementary school and just he was just such an amazing picture all right let's let's uh lead lead into the break with this last thing uh how are we feeling about uh your new coach uh doug the new coach at USC. Yeah, feeling, USC. <laughs> Let's go. Feeling real optimistic. I, my older, my older son uh, went to USC. His his freshman year was Pete Carroll's first year there, so he got to ride out the um, <clears throat> the, the great seasons there. And uh, I've been a season ticket holder there for like twenty years. So uh, through the thick and thin, I was about ready to give him up. Um, but I re I just re upped a few weeks ago. So this is the kind of hope that your former coach inspires Doug, that <laughs> your former coach has inspired Doug to keep his season tickets that he's had for 20 years. He was thinking about getting rid of them, but not now because Lincoln Riley is now their coach. Now other Doug host co-host Doug. How do you feel about uh, Lincoln Riley as the new SC coach? <laughs> okay. My th- thoughts about this are, a whole podcast 
to boil down into 30 seconds, the very worst Oklahoma game performance that I can think of is when we lost to USC in that national championship. My opinion is USC did not do one wrong thing in that whole game. They played an absolutely perfect game. It was pretty incredible. And so that is amazing. I give it up to them. Whatever. Did you go to that game, Doug? No. Duck? No, I didn't. No. I didn't go. It was a it, it not it wasn't just a beatdown. It was like a perfect game. They they didn't do anything wrong. Now, Lincoln Riley, I think he stinks. <laughs> uh, I think he's a great coach. I think he do a great job. It's going to be interesting to see what happens because number one, he's not going to win as many games. You also got a really good quarterback, and something's going to happen. I don't think he's a stand-up guy. We'll see. We'll see. I think it's a good hire. I think they swung for the fences and got it. I also yeah, think he I had some reasons fair. why he wanted to leave that maybe not everybody knows about. And I also think he's not a stand-up guy. All right, but hey, hey we're right. being positive, right? Okay. We're being positive. <laughs> Beautiful. Believable. What's going on, man? Get you start talking about Lincoln Riley. It's all out the window. <laughs> Well, with that, uh, we're going to head to the break, and you're going to hear some uh, stuff from Story Publishing, our sponsor. Uh, they uh, do good work with re- redemptive theme books, so check it out, and we'll be back with Doug Swagger. podcast is brought to you by Storied Publishing. We publish books with redemptive themes. Check out our growing list of titles at storied.pub. Let us help you take your book from idea to a finished product that you can hold in your hands. Contact us today at storied.pub. to iHeartPCA. We're uh, glad that you're with us that you're listening. We're here with Doug Swaggerty um, and Doug has been I got, more, th- I got more thoughts oh. about Lincoln Riley. Uh, okay. <laughs> For another time. Alright. Next podcast, Doug. But, uh, Doug, so um, you talked a little bit about um, Dick Kaufman. Um, why don't you give us just a skinny on who Dick was and then how you guys got connected and started working together and planted Harbor. Yeah, Dick. Um, Dick grew up in New Jersey, and was, I met him, as I said, back in uh, in Philadelphia when we were members of Jack Miller's Church and and uh, students at Westminster. Uh, Dick and I and 
and his wife, Liz, and my wife, Lois, we all moved out to California in 1980, planted a church there. I planted a church um, in 84. Uh, I was when I planted my church in 1994, 10 years later, um, Dick left the Escondido church to go work with Tim Keller. So I'm dropping that name now. Yeah, um, finally. Let's go. That in. I was waiting on that. So Dick went to work with Tim for five years. And I continued to pastor my church in Oceanside uh, through 1998. And at that point, just felt the need to take a break. I'd been at it for 14 years and and uh, just a lot of different things were going on. And we, we didn't feel we were through with ministry, but needed some time off. So I took a break uh, that year. And at the end of that year, Dick called and said, you know, I think we're going to come back to San Diego and start a church. And what do you think about that? And one thing led to another. And uh, before we knew it, we were uh, partners again down in uh, down in Har- down in Harbor in San Diego, and that was our um, the time I we worked together there for. I was there for another ten years at that point, and uh, it was during that time that we started a multi congregational, multi site model of ministry there. So that at the end of that period, uh, there were I think nine different places that we had worship services every Sunday morning uh, in, the, in the greater San Diego area. And uh, Dick was kind of the visionary of that movement. My role was more of a movement facilitator. Um, I ended up uh, being, being having a call as senior pastor of it all for, for a couple of different reasons. But um, Dick was really the movement leader for that. And, uh, and we recruited other ministers to come in, other church planters to come in and start churches and encourage them to actually have more than one church plant, have a multi-site type of a model. And so that's how we went from uh, Dick and myself kind of starting it as teaching elders. By the time those 10 years were over, we had about 15 teaching elders on staff and about 30 other people that were either full or part-time staff members at that point. So it was just a really great decade of, of church planting. That was our uh, that was our heartbeat, what we wanted to do and felt the need for in, in San Diego. And uh, we, we were able to use that strategy to kick off a lot of that. So, Doug, you talked about multi-site there, and that's how I first, well... I met you through assessment, but the second time I hooked up with you was at this thing that Harbor used to put on called a multi-site conference. So what was, what was kind of the vision of being a multi-site planting kind of church? Harbor, I think, was one of the more successful versions of this. And there's still some versions out there today, but what's multi-site church planting? What does that look like? Well, <clears throat> we... We used what we called a multi-congregational, multi-site model, where we recruited church planters to come in and plant congregations of of Harbor. Um, In one sense, you could look at it like we had multiple daughter churches of of one uh, mother church. And and if you want to look at it that way, um, we felt that the biggest advantage of that was we could centralize a lot of the administrative and, um, uh, you know, technical side of the church planting uh, issues. And then we could free 
of church planters just to go out and and uh, meet people and grow the church and uh, make disciples. And so that was our goal in it all. It was a strategy that we we felt would be helpful in in getting several churches planted and off the ground. We we never really thought that it it would it would always stay that way. We envisioned that at time in time those churches would become uh, particular churches as we call them in our denomination and and that's exactly what what did happen over the years how many uh congregations of harbor were at one time involved in that multi-site model well the way we would have described it was we had uh, six uh, six congregations and three of them were double-sided two sites each so we had nine at one point yeah yeah I think that was the most that we had that's very cool so yeah after you uh you were a part of harbor you then took over a church um and that was a pca church the planter i think had left is that right and then you came in after the planter or was it something like that an opportunity came in 2008 to help out a church that Needed, needed some transitional help. And I moved up to Encinitas to do that initially as an interim. That was the first of three interims that I've ended up doing um, as an interim pastor. But that turned into, they they asked me to uh, candidate as a senior. And so I was at Encinitas for almost five full years. At the end of that time, the, um, the church in Encinitas um, had, at, at certain points, we rented out our facility to one of the harbor sites. That was the most northern of the harbor sites uh, in, in uh, North County. And uh, so at the end of my time there, we entered into discussions with Paul Kim. Paul Kim and I entered into discussions about merging those two congregations, which is what ended up happening in 2013, summer of, summer of 13. Yeah, I think that's such a, like, one of the things that you talked about, about the multi-site and just the model itself, and then how these congregations became particularized. And in each of those congregations, I know some of them kind of filtered away, but that Harbor did that work. And then you merged with the Harbor Church and, and created a whole new church. And like, Doug, I think like the humility that it takes to do that work and the way that you led that was just so um, exemplary. Like I was a part of like witnessing that and really, um, and Redeemer has, you know, thrived as a result of that. And, you know, Doug Serban, like that campus, I, I don't think, I don't think you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been there, but like, it's a great campus uh, for a church, beautiful. And like Doug's church was willing to like merge to a much larger church. And as they combined, like they came and and now we're part of that property and, um, this great location in Encinitas, which is one of the most beautiful places in the United States. And so, like, I don't know, just really, it's, I think it's a really cool story about um, how church planning works and how churches can kind of merge together and create something new that's even better than the original. And it's beautiful. So That is a great story. Hey, Doug, I wanted to ask you, we, we, this is pulling back from before. So you've been all in all these assessments. So what, what, if you were to boil down church planting pastor or couple, what do you think is the you're looking for? 
Well, that's really kind of changed over the years. Uh, initially, I think the when in the we even talk about that in assessment, kind of different stages of uh, church planting in the PCA. How initially we were we were looking for just like home run grand slam home run hitters, uh, you know. But we've we've kind of evolved to the significance to, to emphasize the importance of the networks. Um, and and more of a grassroots approach to church planting over the years, and um, to the point now where we we use the DISC personality uh, analysis, and we we even talk about how there can be a successful church plants that come out of any of those four main areas. It's just they're just going to look different. They're going to grow at different rates. They're going to emphasize different things. But uh, there, there's really a lot of different ways that we try to flesh that out through MA these days. There's not really a, I, I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago, it would have, legit, would have been legitimate to talk about an MA church plant and, and everyone would kind of zero in on what that would look like. I don't think that's really very. Okay, so let me back up then. If, if someone were listening to this podcast who was thinking about being a church planner, what would that person want to be working on to, to be able to pass assessment? Now, of course, we don't know if they're going to make a successful church plan, but what would you tell someone, hey, work on these things before you come here? Well, I would tell them to get involved as an intern or, or a volunteer with a church plant to really understand the world of church planting and what you're up against, you know, the unique things about uh, church planting that can be exhilarating, but also discouraging, uh, you know, along the way. So to have that firsthand knowledge and then, and then to go through the readiness seminars or an assessment uh, to see if, if, if the unique things that you need to be able to do as church planners are something that God has, has equipped you with, um, the way that I like to describe assessment centers, I think some people look at assessment centers like it's a referendum on your ministry or, or on, on your ability to do ministry. And we, at the beginning of every assessment, we say that's not what we're, that's not what we're here for. Um, to me, it's, it's more like a specialized niche of ministry that some people will find fits their uh, temperament and their aspirations uniquely, uh, but other people will just not be able to thrive under that. And so I think just the knowledge of, of what church planning really is, not glamorize it, but to, to really dig down into what it, what it consists of is the most important thing. So let me ask you this real quick. Would you pass me and Justin if we went through your assessment? We did pass Justin. Uh-huh. Oh, I'll send you my file but, and you can see what you think. But, you know, we, we do say that sometimes we pass the guys because of their wives. And <laughs> that, that may be the case. Sure. I'd have to go back over my notes, but that uh, could be a possibility with Justin. And, and their mistakes, mistakes were made. We get yeah. it. That's, yeah. you know, that's true, too. So. <laughs> So, uh, Doug, uh, additionally to doing the assessments, you also do coaching. And over the course of the last, you know, seven, seven years, Doug? Seven years, yeah. Yeah. You've coached 
80 guys? Um, about half that, probably about yeah. 45 or so fellows that I've, I've coached officially over those years. You, you've coached me. Even. Coached you, yeah. Yeah, coached me for about five of those years. Um, I was one of your first uh, guinea pigs, right? Doug? That's that's true. You were yeah. early early adopter. So so what what that meant for Doug and I is that you know Doug would call me three three times a month, and we'd have an hour of phone call, and we talk about, for in my case, replanting a church. Um, I was you know I brought was brought to Albuquerque to plant, but ended up replanting the church that I was serving as an apprentice. And so you helped me uh, replant my church. And my church exists today largely because of your coaching. Um, you coached me through a really hard season of, you know, taking over a church and replanting it. And so I'm super appreciative of, of that um, work. And I know that all the, the guys, but one of the most special things that you do as, uh, one of the, as the coach is this retreat um, that you do with all your, the guys you coach. So, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about that retreat that you do for the guys you coach? Yeah, we, every November we have hosted a retreat in Carlsbad for those that we've been, we've been coaching during that year. And uh, we, we God blessed in the sense that um, we spent two and a half years of ministry in Santa Fe, New Mexico uh, that's the only ministry we've really done outside of Southern California. But um, one of the th one of the blessings of that was that uh, we had a, a really dear couple that decided that they wanted to underwrite the cost of that retreat for all of our all of our uh, ministry partners, as we call them. And and so we they have to pay their own way out. But then we have this retreat that goes three days and two nights, which we mainly focus on refreshment, uh, refresh and and refocus. It's not really curriculum driven. Um, we give a lot of time for the couples to get to interact with each other and spend time on their own. And it's really helped the ministry that Lois and I have done. Um, our coaching ministry started out and has continued to be something that we've shared. Um, not all of the guys uh, not all of the wives have entered into that kind of relationship with Lois, but probably about two thirds over the years have uh, also been receiving phone calls from Lois and interaction. What we found the first year, uh, it, it was a really cool experience for us when we finally brought everyone together because uh, it was all these people that we had connected with one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two, -on -two, and all of a sudden they were they were talking to each other and interacting. And over the years, um, those bonds have continued to get stronger and stronger to the point where um, a few of the people that we've coached as church planters, in, in at least two different cases, they're now working on staffs together um, that probably wouldn't have, at least one of them wouldn't have happened had it not been for the connection through the coaching and, the, and those retreats. But there are wonderful times of, um, of kind of safe interaction and shared um, challenge and shared, shared joys. So we, we have a first part of the meeting, uh, which used to go for a couple hours and now it goes for about six hours or so. We've, 
we've dubbed it the happy crappy uh, experience where what's been going on that's made you happy what's been going on that's made you feel crappy so uh, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, and and really the the depth of relationship that has resulted from being able to talk and share on that level has been pretty significant i think it's a really special thing and like uh getting to know all the other you know planters and their wives is great Lo- I, you know lois is such an important part of this ministry that you you d- you've been doing and uh super thankful for her and her story and all of this she has an incredible story that's attached to what doug's done and and even like Doug, I remember the you know 2018 retreat where I was just about to die, and you preached on um, you know John 15, and it really was like a one of those life ministry changing moments um, where I realized I was trying to be way more than I needed to be in my setting and my situation at that time was burning out and you, you saved me, um, you know, through, through the preaching of the word, like, uh, and, you know, feel a, as a different person, um, on the backside of that. So, so thankful for you. D- uh, Doug's going to yeah. ask you the last couple things. Uh, thank you, Justin. Well, we just want to ask you your one piece of advice for the PCA. what you got? Well, I think the, the main advice that I would give would be um, more patience and and trust in one another than what we tend to have as we get further enmeshed in in debates. I uh, a few I, I think it was just last month there was an article that Joel Bell's wrote in World Magazine about the time when Carl Henry came and talked to their world journalism students back around the year 2000, I believe. And Carl Henry was one of my, my uh, theological heroes. And um, Carl Henry had 10 points that he, he shared with them, but there were, there were two of them that really struck me. One was, he said, uh, has the offending party been treated as one would wish to be treated and given the opportunity to reply? I think that's kind of something we talk about often kind of the golden rule and how we deal with one another. But then he also said this, I wrote this down. He said, can I identify the offender's right intentions and note a better way of fulfilling them? And I think that so often what we end up doing from both sides and everywhere in the middle is we, we turn people into what we can argue against, you know, in philosophy terms, we call that straw men, and we um, then we hammer away at straw men rather than uh, being fair to their position. But what Carl Henry was really talking about was going even a step further and identifying the intentions and noting a better way to fulfill those intentions if you, if you have them. Uh, I think, and and all the divisions that we have within um, the PCA over all the different things. I, I think that there's always good intentions ultimately behind every behind every position that is taken. And if we were careful to listen to those and try to understand and and do justice to those, I think we'd we'd do a lot better with one another. It's a good word. Okay, our last piece of business before we conclude, I don't think this is gonna take a lot of time, is 
we need to discuss a different PCA. There are other PCAs, Doug. Yes. Right? You're aware of that? Yes. You didn't think we were the only one, did you? No, I didn't. So I want you to load up. This is, it's not going to take long. Polynesian Catamaran Association. Whoa. The Polynesian Catamaran Association. The website is pca.colgarner.com, I think. Is it fair for me to look uh, look it up? Yeah, no, yeah, we want you to look it up. You don't get to vote, but you can influence our vote. It's a, it's the new PCA website. Uh, you so can say that again, PCA dot what? Uh, C-O-L-E-J-G-A-R-N-E-R. But if you just do Polynesian Catamaran Association, I think you'll find it. So uh, the reason I uh, picked this one is because I like sailing. You I've do. been sailing with Justin. You have. And we had some good times, Justin, didn't we, sailing? We, we did. We, I can't we wait did. till we get to go again. I know, man. I hope to. I hope that's this year. And maybe we could add this into the Carlsbad retreat. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Go out. Good. On a sailboat, you get some days. You never know really what's going to happen. Whatever's going to happen is not going to be very terrible. And you have all this time to talk, right? And you don't get too seasick, right, Justin? No, I didn't get seasick at all. So this is turning into an ad for uh, going sailing. But anyway, uh, I'm not, I have never gone sailing in the Polynesian. So, so our categories real quick. We don't have a lot of time. I think it's going to be fast. Interest to me, interest to others, what I join, what I think of the website, what I think of the logo. So, uh, Doug, we, Justin and I are both uh, rating this on a 1 to 50 rating. Um, my, Justin, you want to tell your initial impression. Yeah, um, looking at the website, you know, the website's kind of trash, uh, but they do have these, like, the Sea People magazine and the Sailor Man, and they have all the, like, uh, covers for these different magazines for the Sailor Man and the Sea People, which I find that to be kind of cool. Those are better than basically anything else, even the logo, which is kind of a little catamaran. You know, it's not the worst logo in the world. At least they have one. But I like the magazine covers. Otherwise, it's pretty much trash. Like, there's not much on it. Mm, tra- I don't know. We're not trashing people. Okay. Uh, uh, other Doug, what do you think? Yeah, I would say the same thing. The, the pictures on the uh, magazine covers don't really look all that exciting uh, to me. I would be interested personally in, like, uh, videos of of uh, catamarans in, in uh, high seas and that sort of thing. I think it would be uh, fascinating, but um, yeah, I think Justin's right. Cool. The web- website just doesn't do that justice. It's almost like this organization stopped existing in 1980. That's true. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's what happened. Well, some of these magazines are from the 2000s, but they look like they're from 1980. Uh, <laughs> some of the magazine covers. So I kind of approach it that they're kind of retro, Doug. Retro? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm going to give this a pretty low score, Doc. Um, Pinterest, I mean, I don't live in Polynesia, and uh, but I do, I do, you know, I have been sailing and like sailing, but I'm, I'm going to say like a 13. Whoa. Okay. I was going to say 21. All right. I, I, really I want this to be better, and I want... If you're if you want me to go sailing in Polynesia on a catamaran, show me pics. Yeah, give me an itinerary of like Polynesia. Like, is that's like one of the most beautiful places in the world? Yeah, I want to see what it's going to look like. Yeah. I, uh, show me like where I would go. No doubt. Yeah, both Tell of my me. son, both of my sons lived for two years in the Hawaiian Islands, so I was looking for something visually that would hearken me back to that. But I didn't. I didn't see any of that. No. No, that's bad. Mm. Not the lowest. No. On the bottom the half, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, if you're connected to the Polynesian Academy of Society, one thing you could do is contact me and Justin. And if you wanted us to come out there and take pictures of our time, and then we could post those on our podcast and website and give you some publicity i'd be willing to do that justin do you agree uh, for sure i'm down Doug, would you agree to go to that uh i would yes okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the offer is out there for t- to increase all of the eyes and ears and uh and of course you know we always feel like maybe we could get all these pcas together that would be a super interesting conference. It would to have. We should have it in California. But I think the Procrastination Association would probably be you know, the most influential in us uh, getting together, Doug. Yeah, I think they're going to win the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, it's so great to talk to you, Doug. It was great to meet you. And you're and- now one of my favorite ones. Yeah, let's go. Just look forward to more time. Yeah. um, If you want to get coached, this would be a great guy to call. Mm -hmm. What else, Justin? Uh, Well, I think he's going to kind of like mostly retire, but, you know, I think he might still be open to to talking to you on the phone occasionally. No, no more talking on the phone. He might assess you. He could still assess you. Yeah, winding down. Yeah. um, You know, one of the best pieces of advice Doug ever gave to me was, regarding parenting and it's one that i think about all the time um the goal of parenting is for this converse in this conversation is to have the next conversation and i find that to be uh, super wise and i've used it in conversations with all of my kids and continue to do so and uh, i think that goes beyond just parenting um meeting with our congregants goal of this conversation is to have the next conversation and uh, keep having conversations that's what our podcast is about a little bit doug right Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. So thanks, Doc. Love You're you. It's good Glad you could be on. Yeah. Am I, I signing PCA. this off? Yeah, you are. All right. No, you are. All right. Hey, I hire PCA. If you uh, give us a like, follow, shout out, share it with your friends, and we're glad that you could join us for uh, this edition. Talk to you later.
were bodies we'd never get any top box here But they all say I can't get there from here Surely there's a place without a Leonard's attack I'll sell in August on my newest toe to 